are here once again, my friends, for this special holiday edition of the Northern Miner Podcast, which really is like every other edition, but it happens to take place right near that wonderful time of year called Christmas, and it's always a special week out here, and hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name's Adrian Pocabelli. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. In a sense, a lot of what's discussed, I would argue, on this program is very, at least the way I, as I put this show together, I try and make very small steps for the most part when I'm not being overly speculative, but I do try and make very small, solid steps that we can hopefully plant our feet on firm ground, so to speak. And I would argue we have more evidence for one of the main theses that I've provided here over the past let's say, three years, which is what I call the Achilles heel of the West, or the playbook, so to speak, of what I am increasingly thinking of. At first, I used to think it was just China, but I think it's Russia, China, and the Global South, capital G, capital S, which I think we can think of as a counterpoint to the capital W West. You know, it's become trendy in the news. You've probably noticed this, where the West is no longer capitalized And I think the better way of doing it is keep the capital W West because it is somewhat of a proper name, I would argue, just on grammatical grounds, not on any sort of ideological or political grounds. Although anybody that's studied, you know, critical theory will know grammar does have a political fallout. But I would just submit as someone who did a master's in English for what that's worth, and that is debatable, I'm sure among many of you. But for what that's worth, I would say keep the capital W on West and add a capital G and a capital S to the Global South. It's like a proper name, I would argue. And then so to remove the capital. Anyway, I don't want to get distracted here, but maybe a little grammatical trivia here on our holiday week here. But getting back to my earlier statement on the Achilles heel of the West and the playbook of the Global South which I'm including Russia and China in that global south, the playbook seems to be the restriction of resources. I mean, I feel like we're seeing it over and over and over again. Look at the Red Sea even. I mean, what is that about? I mean, it's really just cutting off the supplies. And there are some very interesting stories, like just a quick teaser here on the news stories we're going to see here. China has banned the export of the rare earth processing technology. Another constriction. And meanwhile, as the U.S. debates whether to cut off Russian uranium supply by 2028, Russia's going, we might do that just right away. Okay, and so that is what I would consider a fairly simple thesis, but we need evidence for it. But I think we see it as a strategy because I keep seeing it over and over and over Again, so when the West bans, for example, Russian metal, perhaps on a political level that might feel good, but one has to wonder on a pragmatic level, who is this hurting? And so an interesting setup here, a continuation, again, of what I would consider to be a fairly simple thesis. I'd argue we've been seeing evidence for this thesis all throughout the year, and we even see it in countries like Indonesia, Rather than it being so much a geopolitical power point, you know, we're going to cut off your germanium and gallium, for example, and then open a little trickle so that we don't have to say it's cut off, which is what's happened to my latest information. There's another economic side to it where countries in, you know, again, the global south, say like Indonesia, are saying, look, if you want our nickel, you're going to have to process it here locally in Indonesia. You know, we see that also in Mali with the gold, you know, and West Africa, don't forget. I mean, we had some fabulous interviews this year, and one was with the CEO of Fortuna Silver, Jorge Ganoza, and that was a fabulous interview, who was telling us, you know, West Africa is arguably, when you start removing the borders and you just look at it as a region, is arguably, as far as I remember what Jorge was saying, the richest place for gold deposits in the world. And you know who's helping Mali? Build the gold refinery? Here's a Reuters headline from November 22nd. Mali signs agreement with Russia to build gold refinery. So to me, it's very clear what seems to be happening here. 
It is a conscious attempt to restrict and constrain the supply of resources to the West. You know, what would you do? You know, as someone that pays attention to natural resources here, if you're in, you know, China or Russia's or, you know, any Iran's shoes, what are you going to do? What else can you do? Your military is not going to be as developed or as, you know, you're not spending as much money. Let's put it this way. It is debatable how developed, nobody really knows. You know, these high-speed missiles coming out of uh, Russia, apparently the West can't do that yet. But all to say, what is the most effective way at hurting the West without bringing on this war machine? And again, it is what I call the perfect crime. It is inflation. It is, again, these debts relate to the resources. The more you constrain energy and resources, the more things get expensive, the more interest rates have to go higher, the more the debts increase. And eventually, one would think from their perspective, they are hoping for an explosion, a debt explosion. It is, again, what I call the perfect crime, not a shot fired. Maybe a few Houthi drones that you send to the Red Sea by a proxy, right? So all to say, the themes continue. And we have a quick update here. Quite interestingly, Rory Johnston, who actually, who has been on this program, it's been a while. We should try and get Rory Johnston back, where Rory tweeted the official Maersk. So Maersk is one of the main shipping companies that halted shipping through the Red Sea. There is an update here as of December 24th, and here is what Rory posted from Maersk's website. The recent security situation around the Red Sea Gulf of Aden has seen Maersk and other carriers pause, adjust, and divert services away from the area in the interest of safety. Our utmost priority has been and always will be the safety of our seafarers, as well as your cargo on our vessels, and all contingency measures have been introduced with these in mind. As of Sunday, the 24th of December, 2023, we have received confirmation that the previously announced multinational security initiative, Operation Prosperity Guardian, OPG, has now been set up and deployed to allow maritime commerce to pass through the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden, and once again return to using the Suez Canal as a gateway between Asia and Europe. This is most welcome for the entire industry and indeed the functionality of global trade. And it continues with the OPG initiative in operation. We are preparing to allow for vessels to resume transit through the Red Sea, both eastbound and westbound. We are currently working on plans for the first vessels to make the transit and for this to happen as soon as operationally possible. While doing so, ensuring the safety of our employees is of the utmost importance and our number one priority is handling the challenging situation in the Red Sea, Gulf of Aden area. Further, it says they're still assessing the immediate effects of the resolution. We will communicate details. Security measures are in place, but the risks aren't eliminated and therefore As it says later on in this statement, Maersk will not hesitate to reevaluate the situation and once again initiate diversion plans if we deem it necessary for the safety of our seafarers. So, interesting update there, and gold perks up, interestingly, $2,073 as I read this on CNBC. It'll be quite interesting to see now. Will the Houthi attack another ship risking, one assumes, retaliation? I mean, the, the Secretary of Defense of the U.S. Department of Defense, Lloyd Austin, was, as far as I understand, describing it as a kind of highway patrol trying to downplay the mission to protect shipping and keep that shipping lane open. But as we saw, Europeans have been quite hesitant. Spain has not signed on to the U.S. leadership, and neither has Australia. Which is quite interesting, and I don't want to get too diverted here, but we have to see that as a fracture of trust in the coalition that we loosely call the West, capital W. I mean, how can we not see it other than that? Quite interesting. I guess people are worried that they're going to start a war, and all of a sudden Australia, if they are in that you know, convoy, may get pulled into it. I assume that's the concern on the part of countries like Spain and Australia. So we're going to continue to follow that and the huge impact that could have on inflation and energy. You know, one other very interesting thing that happened here, this is Javier Blas, the energy and commodities columnist at Bloomberg, who wrote The World for Sale. It's all about the commodities trading houses 
and the genesis of Glencore and everything. It's an excellent book, which I highly recommend. Now, just one final thing I wanted to mention here, which is, remember that news story from last week on the Japanese steel producer that is taking over U.S. steel? I think I led with that, or was the first or second story there? And I was saying back then that if Trump was in power, you really wonder if that deal would go through, considering how protectionist the U.S. is becoming, particularly how protectionist Trump was when it came to natural resources. Here is a tweet put out by Javier Blas on December 21st. Out of the playbook, one would have expected from President Trump's White House, but this one from President Biden's administration. Japanese ownership of a U.S. steel company may create a national security risk. Seriously? And here's a statement from National Economic Advisor Lael Brainerd on U.S. Steel. The president believes U.S. Steel was an integral part of our arsenal of democracy in World War II and remains a core component of the overall domestic steel production that is critical to our national security. And he has been clear that we welcome manufacturers across the world building their futures in America with American jobs and American workers. However, he also believes the purchase of this iconic American-owned company by a foreign entity, even one from a close ally, appears to deserve serious scrutiny in terms of its potential impact on national security and supply chain reliability. This looks like the type of transaction that the Interagency Committee on Foreign Investment Congress empowered and the Biden administration strengthened is set up to carefully investigate. This administration will be ready to look carefully at the findings of any such investigation and to act if appropriate. And then it goes into manufacturing jobs and the United Steelworkers. And I suspect that's what this is about. Like, I'm sure steel in America is an issue and that does raise eyebrows. But I suspect this union issue, this battle over a potential Trump candidate and Biden over union voters, I suspect there is some electioneering in here as well. So tons to look at here and some incredibly interesting stories as we continue to navigate the newswires here on a weekly basis. Welcome to your holiday edition of the Northern Miner podcast. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on X at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, China bans export of rare earth processing technology over national security. This is Reuters via mining.com. China, the world's top processor of rare earths, banned the export of technology to extract and separate the critical materials on Thursday. And this was written on December 21st, so not even a week ago. The country's latest step to protect its dominance over several strategic metals. While Western countries are trying to launch their own rare earth processing operations, the ban is expected to have the biggest impact in so-called heavy rare earths used in electric vehicle motors, medical devices, and weaponry, where China has a virtual monopoly on refining. And we have a quote here from Nathan Pekarsik, co-founder of the geopolitical consulting firm Horizon Advisory, quote, this should be a clarion call that dependence on China in any part of the value chain is not sustainable. Continuing on, China's Commerce Ministry sought public opinion last December on the potential move to add the technology to its, quote, catalog of technologies prohibited and restricted from export. So this has been discussed for a year in China, which is interesting. It also banned the export of production technology for rare earth metals and alloy materials, as well as technology to prepare some rare earth magnets. Sounds like it's fairly broad this technology export restriction. The catalog stated aims include protecting national security and public interest. And continuing down a little bit, we have a quote from UCOR CEO Pat Ryan, quote, new technologies will be needed to outmaneuver the Chinese grip on these important areas. And then we have a quote from former CEO of Neo Performance Materials, which separates rare earths in Estonia, Konstantin Karyanopoulos, quote, this announcement just formalizes what everyone knew to be the case, end quote. And that is kind of speaking to our introduction somewhat. It's important that we do formalize things. NEO owns its own technology for rare earth separation, magnetics materials, and magnet manufacturing. Currently, China separates 99.9% of global heavy rare earths, according to consultancy Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. I'll read that again. 99.9% of global heavy rare earths. 
Most of the Western processing capacity being installed is for quote-unquote light rare earths, including neodymium and praseodymium. And we have a quote from Dan DeYoung at BMI. Quote, most likely the impact of this ban will be in greater difficulty in getting heavy rare earth separation capacity online outside of China. You can have all the neodymium and praseodymium separated in Europe or the U.S. as you want, but if you're still relying on dysprosium from China, you're still very exposed to geopolitical shocks, end quote. So having just your neodymium and praseodymium according to De Jong, is simply not enough. And we have a headline here at the Northern Miner. UCOR wraps up commissioning of Rapid SX Rare Earth Separation Tech Plant. This is the following day, Blair McBride at the Northern Miner. UCOR has completed the commissioning of its Rapid SX Commercial Demonstration Plant for separating rare earths at its facility in Kingston, Ontario. UCOR's demonstration plant is aimed at separating heavy and light rare earths to extract samples of praseodymium and neodymium, two of the most important rare earths often used in the production of permanent magnet materials. And we have a quote from UCOR Vice President and Chief Operating Officer Michael Schreider, who said in a news release, Quote, since early this year, the company has been testing, adjusting, and optimizing its 52-stage demo plant to meet its rapid SX commercialization and demonstration deployment objectives in Louisiana. UCOR is very pleased to announce the completion of commissioning procedures with its third and final mixed rare earth chemical concentrate and the commencement of its U.S. Department of Defense demonstration program. So as BMI was saying, we need the dysprosium too. Continuing on, U.S.-Russia in race to ban uranium trade. So, again, it is the big theme here. This is Henry Lazenby at the Northern Miner. The United States Congress is preparing for critical votes on legislation impacting the country's uranium industry, focusing on the Nuclear Fuel Security Act, NFSA, and a potential ban on Russian uranium imports. The proposed NFSA promises to direct about $2 billion towards revitalizing the domestic uranium and nuclear fuel sectors upon approval is a matter of national security. The funding may come from standard government appropriations or special emergency allocations by the White House. This governmental engagement has already been a catalyst, driving uranium prices up 71% year-on-year to a current high of $82.30 per pound of uranium oxide from below $20. But Russia might beat the U.S. to the punch and turn off the tap of uranium exports to the U.S. first. Bloomberg reported on December 15th that Tenex, a Russian state-owned uranium enterprise, was cautioning its American customers about the possibility of Russia preemptively stopping uranium exports to the United States. The potential moves comes in response to the NFSA that would ban imports beginning in 2028. The strategic maneuvering comes as the U.S., reliant on imports for about 40% of its nuclear fuel from countries like Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, is looking to reduce this foreign dependence. So my question is, if the U.S. relies on 40% of its nuclear fuel from Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, it relies on its heavy rare earths entirely on China, it relies basically, from my understanding, almost all of its germanium and gallium, 60% of the nickel is processed out of China. Does the U.S. really have a card if China decides to take Taiwan? Does it really have a card to play if all of their resources are coming from the global south? It's just an open question here. Maybe some people would say it's not a problem. But that's what I wonder to myself. Continuing on, Kazakhstan exports most uranium in eight years. This is Colin McClelland at the Northern Miner. Kazakhstan, the world's leading uranium producer, has reported its highest sales of the nuclear fuel since 2015, driven mainly by China's increase in demand as it rivals France for the second most reactors in operation. So not only have they increased their oil intake from Russia, now they're increasing their uranium intake. The total value of uranium sales abroad for the first 10 months of the year surged by a third to $2.5 billion compared to the period last year according to the country's first credit bureau, as reported Wednesday by the Astana Times in the nation's capital. China, which has 55 reactors to France's 56 and 93 in the United States, increased its buying of Kazakh uranium by 2.2 times to $992 million during the period. The former Soviet Republic also hiked shipments to Russia by 72% to $1.2 billion, the data show. So shipments to Russia of uranium from Kazakhstan is increasing. The increases come at the expense of trade with Canada, which dropped 70% to $168 million. So 
isn't this interesting? Russia has almost doubled its uranium purchases from Kazakhstan, while China's purchases are up 2.2 times. Back to our theme about the constriction of resources. If China and Russia are buying up all the uranium, all this does is give them more leverage. Because if the West starts running out of uranium, and maybe the uranium people would say, we're not going to have a problem, but all I've heard in the last 15 years in regard to the uranium narrative is, big picture, there's a supply-demand issue. Sometimes on the smaller picture, there's not. You know, five or six years ago, there was too much on the market. But in the big picture, that was still within a context of there not being enough in the long run. So to me, that's just them trying to get leverage here. If you disagree, feel free to leave a comment. Continuing on, U.S. claims huge chunk of seabed amid strategic push for resources. This was quite fascinating. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. The U.S. extended its claims on the ocean floor by an area twice the size of California, securing rights to potentially resource-rich seabeds at a time when Washington is ramping up efforts to safeguard supplies of minerals key to future technologies. And you see it on a map here. They're really extending beyond what looks like the law of the sea, like they're going right into the Arctic here. Let's just continue on here. The so-called extended continental shelf covers about 1 million square kilometers. Predominantly in the Arctic and Bering Sea, an area of increasing strategic importance where Canada and Russia also have claims. The U.S. has also declared the shelf's boundaries in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Gulf of Mexico. The long-awaited announcement earlier this week maps the outer reaches of the U.S. continental shelf, the country's land territory under the sea. Under international laws, countries have economic rights to natural resources on and under the seabed floor based on the boundaries of their continental shelves. Quote, it's a huge deal because it's a huge amount of territory, end quote, said Rebecca Pincus, director of the Polar Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, which has devoted an entire webpage to the ramification of this week's news. Continuing, quote, it's U.S. sovereignty over the seabed floor, and so whether it's seabed mining or oil and gas leasing or cables or what have you, the U.S. is announcing the borders of its ECS and will have sovereignty over those decisions. And again, ECS's extended continental shelf. The U.S. State Department said that the development, quote, is about geography, not resources, end quote. And it continues, the U.S., like all countries, has, quote, an inherent interest in knowing and declaring to others the extent of its extended continental shelf and thus where it is entitled to exercise sovereign rights, end quote. It said in an emailed response to questions. My only question is, what changed? Did the underground of the ocean change? Did the shelving change? So I suspect what change is actually more political than geographical. Now, the big reasoning here is for minerals, interestingly. According to James Kraska, chair and professor of international maritime law at the U.S. Naval War College, wrote, the extension, quote, highlights American strategic interests in securing these hard minerals on its seabed and subsoil, lying sometimes hundreds of miles offshore, end quote. And interestingly, this may conflict with Canada. If we scroll down a bit and look at this, more than half of America's extended continental shelf, 520,000 square kilometers, stretches in a large wedge north of Alaska towards the Arctic Ocean, including an area that overlaps Canadian claims to the seabed floor, according to the U.S. statement. Canada and the U.S. don't have a maritime boundary agreement in the Arctic, and establishing the U.S. outer limits in the Arctic, quote, will depend on delimitation with Canada, end quote, the State Department said in its executive summary. And scrolling down this article, just at the end here, the decision to unilaterally delineate its continental shelf boundary rather than to ratify the U.N. Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf and then submit a claim through the commission, in other words, through the United Nations, may raise the ire of other countries, said Rebecca Pincus at the Wilson Center. Quote, I think a lot of other countries around the world are going to have thoughts about how the U.S. has done this. And quote, she said, it may also reduce the likelihood of the U.S. ever ratifying the law, since a major reason for doing so would have been to make a CLCS claim, which is the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. So they have gone unilateral on this, and so once again, you know, from the perspective of the global south, they have to look at this and go, one set of rules for you, one set of rules for us. I mean, feel free to leave a comment if you see otherwise. Continuing on, 
Japan-U.S. ties stronger than ever, minister says amid U.S. steel scrutiny. This is Reuters via Mining.com. Japanese industry minister Ken Sato said on Friday that the U.S.-Japanese ties were, quote, stronger than ever, end quote, although he declined to comment directly on growing scrutiny in the United States of a proposed deal for Nippon Steel to buy U.S. steel. Speaking at a media conference, Sato said he was aware of a statement by the U.S. National Economic Council director that the purchase deserves, quote, serious scrutiny, end quote, but would not comment directly on private deals. Quote, I believe Nippon Steel simply needs to take the proper steps in the procedure. In any case, the Japan-U.S. alliance is stronger than ever, and it is important to work together in the field of economic security. And here's another quote later in the article. Nippon Steel Management has defended the chunky premium it is paying for the iconic U.S. steelmaker as it looks to grow overseas revenue. Quote, it's a miracle it came up for sale. This is the kind of deal you don't see even once in a lifetime, end quote, said another banker. I mean, it definitely raised flags over here. If you were listening last week, U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Rom Emanuel, had welcomed the deal shortly after its announcement on Monday, saying in an ex-social media post the two companies were, quote, defining the future of the key steel industry and forging a strong bond as they face a more competitive environment, end quote. He added that the deal would, quote, deepen the bonds, end quote, between the U.S. and Japan. And continuing on, First Quantum says Panama hasn't given legal basis to close mine. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com, and let's not forget George McLeod from Access Mining, who is saying First Quantum has a very good case. And let's take a closer look here. Panama's government hasn't provided a legal basis to First Quantum Minerals for pursuing a closure plan for its giant copper mine in the country, according to the metals producer. First Quantum has been unable to formally engage with the Central American government to clarify the legal situation and associated environmental obligations for its Cobre Panama mine, the Vancouver-based company said Friday in a statement. That is interesting. Sounds like they're not even picking up the phone at this point. First Quantum statement comes two days after Panama's Ministry of Commerce and Industries said it was pursuing a closure plan that will take several months to develop, according to the company. The plan will include a temporary phase of environmental preservation and safe management, conducting audits and formation of a multidisciplinary expert panel, the statement said. The closure plan is expected to be presented in June 2024. So interesting developments there. And another thing we've been discussing here is the new president in Argentina potentially being good for miners. And here's a headline from Bloomberg News. Mille looks to cut costs for Argentina's miners in broader deregulation push. And quick look here. President Javier Mille wants to turn Argentina's lithium and copper rush into an investment bonanza, starting with cutting red tape. God, I'm sure Barrick Gold and Mark Bristow are just starting to get pretty interested in what might happen to Pascualama there, that mountain of gold and silver straddling the Argentina-Chile border. Let's continue here. Millet, a libertarian who took office on December 10th vowing to free up Argentina's tightly controlled economy, unveiled a package of deregulation measures late Wednesday that would help a slew of industries. He singled out cutting costs for mining companies that in recent years have been lured to vast deposits in the Andes as the transition to clean energy spurs demand for battery metals. And here's a quote from the presidential decree outlining the reforms. Quote, Mining is another area with great potential in the country that is notably underdeveloped. To that end, we must eliminate costs. So pretty interesting quote there. Millet plans to do that by revoking two laws enacted in the 1990s, the National System for Mining Trade and the National Mining Data Bank. Both require firms to provide reams of data to the government. He's also planning to do away with customs restrictions. The previous government sought to keep some lithium production for local use to develop a downstream industry. Quote, from today on, it's prohibited to prohibit exports, Millet said. Pretty interesting. And Northern Dynasty and the Pebble Project continue. Like, whatever you think about the Northern Dynasty Pebble Project in Alaska, which apparently threatens some freshwater salmon reserves that are quite important. I've heard from people I know this is definitely a no-go, considering where it is. For whatever you think of the management there, and they've had all, had all sorts of weird things going on recently, you have to admire their persistence. Northern Dynasty closes $23 million in financings to support Pebble Project. You know what I think the gamble is and the what the financings are based on? To me, it's not a huge amount, but it's enough where if this thing goes through, they probably get a huge payoff if Trump gets elected. I think this is the gamble that's going on here, is the hope from 
Ron Thiessen, the CEO of Northern Dynasty, that this thing's going to get done if Trump gets elected. So, I mean, it just, as I like to call it, Northern Dynasty, the soap opera continues. And just an FYI, there is an excellent infographic on Northern Miner tracking the lithium offtake deal landscape worldwide. Great infographics as to where lithium is being processed. Back to the reality of the situation here. It is fascinating. You see, you know, for example, and this is global, you see, you know, who's working in Argentina, BMW, Ford, General Motors, uh, Stellantis, Toyota. Just fascinating. You see who's working in Chile, Ford SQM, LG Energy. Check that out on northernminer.com, tracking the lithium offtake deal landscape worldwide. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the bond market for context. The price of money, U.S. 10-year Treasury bonds are yielding 3.89%. That is 0.1% lower than last week, so hardly any movement on yields for the week. U.K. 10-year gilts are yielding 3.5%, down 0.15% on the week, and Italian 10-year bonds are at 3.55%. That is down 0.13% for the week. So right now, the U.S. is paying almost 0.4% more in interest costs than the Italian and U.K. bond markets. Maybe that has to do with the so-called Fed pivot. Interesting. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $2,072.40 per ounce. That is $13 higher than last week. And you wonder if the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden and Suez Canal have anything to do with that. Turning to silver, which is still below $25 at $24.56 per ounce, only 13 cents higher than last week. And I discussed this with Jeffrey Christian in our upcoming interview, the sense of silver having not confirmed gold's move, and we get a pro take on that. Continuing on, platinum is trading at $970 per ounce. That is $15 higher than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,223 even per ounce. That is $44 higher than last week and up off the lows of $959 two weeks ago. So nice bounce in palladium. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.90 per pound. That is $0.05 cents higher than last week. Iron ore is trading at $135.52 per metric ton. That is a dollar higher than last week. Aluminum is $0.03 cents higher at $1.06 per pound. Lead is a penny lower at $0.92 cents per pound. And nickel is also lower at $7.38 per pound. That is $0.30 cents lower than last week. And tin is also lower at $11.28 per pound. That is $0.14 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $13.22 per pound. Lithium is lower at $13.59 per kilogram. That is $0.08 cents lower than last week and continuing to hover in this $13 range. Uranium is higher at $86.35 per pound. That is $4 higher than last week. And zinc is also higher at $1.18 per pound. That is three cents higher than last week. Zooming out, it appears that every market, you know, as Jeffrey Christian says in this upcoming interview, he tends to look at each market separately on a granular basis and that's kind of what I see going on here is each market is really following its own path. As we see gold continue its rise with silver lagging, palladium, nice bounce, but could be a dead cat bounce for all we know. It was getting pretty low there. Most of the industrial metals kind of mixed with standouts being, with standouts being really aluminum and zinc higher as well as uranium showing continued strength and lithium showing no signs of recovery yet. And those are your metal prices. 
Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Jeffrey Christian, managing partner at CPM Group. We discuss all of the four precious metals and begin with Jeff's call on the macro economy, which is key, as he points out, to being able to project uh, where gold prices might go is an understanding of macro. What you'll find here, just to whet the appetite here, is an increasing emphasis on potential political volatility here. And we also go into each of the precious metals, gold, silver, palladium, and platinum to hear what's going on in each of these markets and just general thoughts on where we are. I hope you enjoy it and we will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program, Jeffrey Christian, Managing Partner at CPM Group. Jeffrey, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Adrian. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Indeed, the feeling is mutual. We're always excited to hear your unique insights from really what seems to me as a lifelong career, really, in dealing with these precious metals as well as others. And of course, you wrote that book way back when on electric vehicle batteries which maybe we won't get into this episode, but welcome back. So as we enter the end of the year here, I mean, it's been very dramatic in terms of the metals. Uh, gold especially is just, you know, starting to perk up a little fire at the back of all our minds here that's kind of burning brighter. But before we get into that, what is your sense of the big picture here? I know you had a recession call. I think you were saying for 2024 in earlier episodes. How are you feeling now just about the global situation, the big picture, and the chance of a recession in 2024? Yeah, I really have a, like a psychological problem with taking a victory lap. But I have to say, we've done very well this year calling the markets and the global economy. You know, we started the year saying the theme that we used with one of our clients' work was the eye of the storm for 2023, saying that we thought that 2023 would see, you know, no recession, falling inflation, relatively strong economies around the world, that precious metals, that gold prices would rise to record levels again on an annual average basis in 2023 compared to previous records, which were set consecutively in 2021 and 2022, but that things would be relatively calm. And then we thought that things would get much worse in terms of macroeconomic and political environment in 2024, 2025. And that's basically what's happened. And we have daily discussions about what we think about the markets, both short-term and long-term. And yesterday, this being at the end of the year, because today's the solstice, and yesterday was the 20th of December, just you know, for the record when we're recording this, yesterday we spent a long time talking about, okay, we have looked at a, if you go back a year and a half, two years ago, we thought that there could be a relatively deep, difficult recession in 2024, 2025. And so we've been saying for several years, don't look for a recession in 2021 when people were calling, but 2022, 2023, look for it then. Over the course of this year, the second, third, and fourth quarters, we have backed away somewhat from that precipice. And we've said, we think there'll be a recession, but it may be less painful and less dramatic than we've been thinking. You know, it's probably not going to be as short and shallow as the ones that we saw in 1991 and 2001, but it's probably not going to be as deep as we were thinking. Yesterday, we were going through it, and I said, looking at the macroeconomic data, but more importantly, the political environment, is 2024 going to be worse than we currently are saying? And at the end of a long discussion among our analysts, we concluded that the answer was probably yes, but we'll keep our economic forecasts where they are now. Now, one of the things that we've been saying for several months is that if you look at the economic and political environment, in 2024, we think the economic environment will be less difficult than we had been thinking, but the political environment will be much worse. And that those political events and concerns and developments will probably become much more important in driving investment demand into gold and silver and in the overall financial market, that the political factors will probably be much more detrimental to financial wealth 
in 2024 than the economic factor. And that's where we're looking. So, you know, on a macroeconomic level, we're looking at still big fiscal problems and monetary issues and currency market issues. But what we're really focusing on are various dysfunctionalities, both on domestic political levels, just about every major country in the world, and on an international political basis, too. So we're looking at a pretty hostile political environment in 2024 with gold prices accelerating on their increase. And, you know, just again, we had been saying that we thought that gold prices could start rising much more forcefully and silver prices in the fourth quarter of 2023 as we headed into 2024, but that most of the increases would occur in 2024. In terms of your forecast, then, what we've seen so far in this rally in gold Things are just getting started. Oh, well, I think we're well into it. I mean, if you think about it, the rally really started in the middle of 2019 when the gold price was around $1,250. And we've seen, as I said, consecutive records, you know, uh, in 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023. We're already up sharply. That said, if I look at where our projections are, maybe we're halfway through it in terms of where we think the annual average price will be over the next two or three years. So I'm not sure that we're in the foothills because this has been going on for a couple of years, but I think that you probably have another substantial wave upward in both gold and silver prices as investors sort of look at the political environment they're living in, the financial market instabilities that we expect to emerge over the next couple of years and a, a more hostile economic environment. And I think that, that will, those three things will cause investors to buy more gold and silver than they have been, and that the prices probably will rise substantially. Right, and an annual average price that will be substantially you know, higher from where we were a, a couple of years ago right. for halfway. So pretty remarkable. And that, and that implies higher intraday prices too. You know, right. everybody likes to talk about, well, you know, the price of gold reached $850 in 1980, but the average price was like 600 or something like that. And, you know, the average price of silver reached $50 in 2011, but the average price was like $34 or $36. So you have to take that into context. But yeah, if we're talking about record gold prices on an annual average basis, and higher, if not record, silver prices on an annual average basis, that implies that you're going to see intraday spikes that are very high. Yeah. And pay attention. The recent spike in gold prices to $2,152, prices stayed high for 20 minutes. And that was an extremely long period of time compared to the previous spikes in 1980 and 2011. Yeah. Really? That was a long time. Yeah. Wow. This was a long time for the price to be that high. That is fascinating. Okay. And just on the big picture, as we kind of wrap up here on the Fed, what is your sense of this whole Fed pivot and interest rates as we look into 2024? You know, the Fed keeps saying, as do others, that the markets have gotten way ahead of the Fed. And there are people who really you know, they want the interest rates to fall and they've been predicting that the Fed would have to lower interest rates for more than a year now, and they haven't. And the Fed has been very clear and it's been actually doing what it's been saying. And they say, you know, we're not sure that the period of rising interest rates is over. Inflation is still a problem. And if you look at the lower inflation over the last couple of months, a lot of it has been lower energy prices. And those energy prices are extremely volatile. And you look at what's going on in the Middle East right now and the halts of shipping oil through the Suez, you know, so they're not convinced and we're not convinced that inflation is in great as great of shape as it is. You know, there's a lot of positives, but there are some negatives and a lot of the positive vibes about inflation actually have to do with energy prices, which can turn around tomorrow. So the Fed has said, we're not sure that the period of rising interest rates is over, but we think we're at or close to the peak. We're probably not maybe going to raise interest rates anymore, but that doesn't mean that they're imminently ready to lower rates. 
And the market has said, oh, you know, I don't know how many commentaries I've seen. Oh, great. Christmas comes early. The Fed's going to lower interest rate. And the Fed, you know, the market, FedWatch, CME FedWatch bond prices suggest, well, maybe they'll start lowering them 75 basis points over three times starting in March or May. You know, that's months from now. And it's tentative. And the Fed has not even been that aggressive in laying out what its expectations are. So, yeah, the Fed probably will lower interest rates. But there's, you know, this optimism and hope for lower interest rates is completely misbegotten because the Fed has said very clearly, and they are telling the truth, they will only lower interest rates when there are severely worse economic conditions. So the Fed's going to keep interest rates five and a quarter, five and a half percent, as long as the economy has been as strong as it has, employment has been as strong as it has, unemployment has been as low as it has, and inflation is falling, right? If inflation turns around, perhaps because of oil prices, they may actually raise rates. But they have said they will only lower rates if they see signs of severe economic weakness. So those guys cheering for lower interest rates, when you see lower interest rates, that's the time to get worried. You know, the Fed's not gonna lower interest rates just willy-nilly. They're going to only lower interest rates when you see a significant deterioration in overall economic conditions in the United States. So, you know, lower interest rates are like record gold prices. You kind of want them, but you really don't want them because you're not going to see them unless things are really nasty, ugly. Interesting. So an ominous sign to a certain degree, the sign that they may pivot, it's half the story, shall we say. And we're getting the optimistic side of it from the general narrative here, which brings us then to gold and how it'll perform in this environment. You know, right now we've had a good year. Generally in the markets, it's been fantastic, really, if we look at the S&P. In gold, it's been pretty good as well. So what are the main driving forces from your perspective that are driving this market now, say this year, and potentially in next year? It sounds like political uncertainty next year is going to be a major factor, but what was it this year and kind of now? The major factor driving gold prices higher or lower always is investment demand. And then you say, well, what drives investment demand? And that's when you get into the macroeconomic and political factors. You know, we had an ersatz competitor back in the 80s that somebody, a reporter asked him about CPM Group and he said, Jeff Christian's not good at projecting gold prices. He's just good at projecting global economic trends and stock markets. <laughs> because, and, and you know, we've had other uh, ersatz competitors who have tried to do the macroeconomic and political work that we've done, having spent most of their life looking at copper supply demand trends, you know. But you have to say, okay, what drives investment demand? And there are some investors who will buy and sell gold based on the fundamental supply and demand balance of gold. And there they run into the problem of listening to promoters and promotional organizations that have overstated, for example, central bank gold. But most investors buy gold because they're of concerns of the overall economy or inflation or currency markets or financial market instability or weakness in the stock and bond market or political insecurities within their own realm country or neighborhood or bank, and on a global basis. So we spend a lot of time looking at those factors, and we have a really good track record calling macroeconomic and political problems and issues. And that's what really, you know, so you have to look at those factors. They'll tell you, as will fundamental research into the investment market, where you start finding out are how much investors are really buying? Are they selling? Are they shifting as they have been over the course of 2023? Investors have been shifting out of gold ETFs into physical gold that they hold mm. often on an allocated basis, paying the fees or on an unallocated basis. But they're moving away from their exposure to gold being filtered through counterparties in the financial sector. So there's clearly a rise 
in concerns not about gold, but about the financial industry and the, the stability of these intermediaries that can gum up your ownership of gold. So, you know, we pay attention to those fundamentals and the fundamentals are very important. Now we look at the gold market and we say total supply, including scrap, fabrication demand, and then stock demand. And stock demand is demand for gold or silver that is as an investment where you keep the gold or silver in bullion or bullion coin form. And stock demand in gold includes investment demand and central bank. Central banks have been buying 10, 12, 13 million ounces of gold for the last several years. They did not buy 20 million ounces of gold last year, the way some people have told the market and the market, some people in the market are believing. They bought about 10 million ounces last year. They're on schedule this year to probably be around 12 or 13 million ounces in 2023. And in 2024, they probably will be buying about 12 or 13 million ounces. That compares to maybe 25 million ounces that private investors are buying. So there are maybe a third of stock demand, but it's the stock demand that really drives the market. Central banks are more price sensitive. They like to buy low and not buy high, but private investors will bid the price higher. So we pay a lot of attention to private investment demand around the world because that's the major factor, but central bank demand is also a secondary factor. Mine production, which is flat to lower because of the previous period of lower prices and structural issues within the mining industry, that is also important, but it's far less important in our gold pricing models than our investment demand and central bank buying. A comprehensive answer, which is why we love to ask you about these fascinating matters. And just to like parse out a little point that I think is really fascinating, this idea that investors, as far as I understood you, were moving more towards physical over the, you know, so-called paper products or ETFs, which to me, that tells me, and tell me if you agree with this, that this is based a little bit more on fear rather than speculative greed. Like this is an attempt to kind of retain wealth over necessarily trying to make it big in the next big run. Um, I think one of the reasons why we're so confident that in our projection that gold prices are going to rise sharply is that it is fear and greed. So you always, with gold, you always have somebody who says, you know, I'm looking at the world and my fear factor has risen. So I want to buy gold. But you know what? Because my fear factor has risen, and I'm probably not a genius, other people's fear factor has risen, that probably means that gold prices are going to rise. So there's a greed factor in there too. And you know, you've seen this throughout history where investors will buy gold out of both fear and greed. And you're seeing both of those factors at work at present in the gold and silver markets. You know, that is fascinating. Just finally on this point, it's like on a personal level, I would rather put my money, it, rather than cash, I like putting in gold almost exactly for your reasons, because if things go down, I can feel comfortable. Okay, I'm in gold, that shouldn't go down as much. And maybe there's that option, so to speak, that things might go up. Whereas cash, it's, well, maybe the dollar has topped out, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. So to your point, uh, it speaks to me on a personal level. I should say. And so as far as silver is concerned and the other precious metals, you know, it feels like silver below $25. I mean, in my amateur sleuthing here, to me, it feels like it hasn't confirmed gold's big jump. Does that mean anything to you? Is that just sort of misguided thoughts? How is your sense of the silver price in relation to gold right now? We're very granular in our research. Yeah, and, and when we look at the gold market, we look at the gold market. And when we look at the silver market, we look at the silver market. And we don't sort of say, well, gold's going to do this, therefore silver's going to do that. And we've seen trends, the big, again, it's investment demand. The investment demand for silver has sort of lagged the investment demand for gold to some extent. And what you're seeing is that more people in more parts of the world turn to gold than they do to silver as that fear index increases. When things get tough, I, you know, if I can't afford gold, I'm going to hold silver. But the reality is that I'd rather have gold. It's seen more as a financial asset and an alternative currency 
denominator for your wealth than silver. So silver has lagged gold. It has risen sharply and, and people shouldn't belittle it. I mean, I hear people talking about how pathetic it is that silver has been trading between, say, $22 and $26 this year. That's an incredibly good price for silver. We do think that, you know, maybe the range next year is 20, this, 22 to 28. And we do think that there's potential for the price to spike sharply higher on a brief basis and for the silver price to average more than $30 at some point over the next two or three years, which we think is a very big move. You know, and we think that anybody who's looking for 50 on an average or, you know, a permanent move to $100 just doesn't understand the silver market. One of the things that we've seen is a lot of investors selling physical silver. On a net basis, investors are still buying silver, and they're probably buying more silver this year than they did last year. And we expect them to buy more silver in 2024 than in 2023. But you have gross sales and gross purchases rising. So while we're seeing on a net basis investment demand rise, and it's nowhere near what the promoters say, you are seeing a lot of investors selling silver. And there's a disenchantment factor. People who bought silver because of the silver squeeze or Wall Street silver or, or COMEX is running out. And two or three years down the road, those guys have disappeared or they're under investigation by regulators, you know, and, and the dreams just haven't come true. So you have a lot of investors who bought into those theories and they've been selling silver. Somebody, when I said that in one of our videos, at, at CPM videos, somebody wrote back to me and said, there's another factor. A lot of people who bought silver bought silver because they're not all that wealthy and they can't afford an ounce of gold, but they can afford 10 ounces of silver. And they need money because, you know, while we are seeing strong jobs growth and increased payments to people, you know, salaries are actually finally rising. The reality is that there are still an enormous number of people who are cash deprived. And some of those people are selling their silver in order to buy food and gasoline, and stuff like that. But there's also this disenchantment factor. That's going to hang over the silver market and restrain its increase. But we do think that this investment demand, as I said, we do expect investment demand on a net basis to rise in 2024 and to pull the price of silver higher. And just a quick follow-up then on silver. Is investment demand the biggest factor in dealing with silver as it is with gold, or is it something else? It is the biggest factor. It's investment demand that really drives the silver market. And if you think about it, you know, fabrication demands like 800 million ounces, 900 million ounces. Solar panel use is rising, but it's rising from like 120, you know, million ounces to 140 million ounces, not to 500 million ounces. It's not nearly as big and as important as the promoters say. It really comes down to investment demand. And investors own, you know, well over a couple billion ounces of silver. And they have an enormous amount of cash relative to the size of the silver market. So investors buying and selling silver really is the tail that wags that dog. You know, in fact, it's really the dog and the tail is mine production, secondary recovery, fabrication mm -hmm. demand. Because you do have, you have a big pool of silver investment globally. And the amount of money that investors can put to silver or take out of silver is enormous compared to the other factors of supply and demand in silver. Fascinating. And just a final question on silver. Do you know the general ratio of how big the gold market is towards the silver market? I think this gold market is something like nine times or 10 times larger by value than the silver market. Okay, excellent. That's what I would guess, uh, actually. Uh, so, okay, fascinating. Now, I'm sure you saw last week, or just a few days ago, the UK put in sanctions on Russian metal, where British citizens could no longer buy metal that was sourced out of Russia or from Russia. Of course, 
the LME getting the exemption, of course, on the industrial metals, not the precious metals, as we've discussed. <laughs> and then we saw this big move in palladium, a 12% move in a day, I believe, uh, at least the headline said that. What is your sense? I mean, we've discussed this before. It sounds like platinum and palladium are very illiquid markets, is what I remember you telling me in the past. Is that what happened there? They are illiquid markets. Palladium prices have been dropping and dropping and dropping. So, you know, the I, I don't have a chart in front of me to say, you know, that that big upward move in palladium took prices back to a level that probably was seen a couple months ago because the price of palladium had been falling as investors were unwinding their long positions. I haven't looked at the details of the UK regulation and the devil will be in the details because you see, you have millions of ounces of palladium and smaller amounts, but millions of ounces of platinum floating around the world that are of Soviet origin as well as Russian origin. And the question is going to be, are you going to sanction people who are buying PGMs from Russian sources now? Or are you going to be sanctioning people who are trading Russian metal that's been sloshing around the Western market for years or decades? You know, and that's an ongoing problem. And you've, it's funny because you'll see people who rely on like trade statistics and they say, oh, there's all this Russian metal moving into country X or country Y. You know, I wonder what's going on. I wonder why the Russians are selling so much palladium. And it's not that the Russians are selling it. It's that someone who holds this Russian metal that they bought at $700 and they watched it go to $3,000 and now it's down to $1,000 is selling that metal. So like I said, I haven't looked at the details of the UK regulations and what they plan with enforcement, but it's very difficult because you have so much metal that does circulate in the global market that is of Russian origin, but it's not coming from Russia. Yeah. And are you going to penalize people if they're buying Russian metal that's stored in Switzerland by somebody who lives in United States or Canada? Right. And bought 10 years ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. I know people who bought palladium at $35 an ounce from a trading company that bought it from Russia in the 70s. And their children, I know, because they're passed away. <laughs> the family still owns it. Incredible. $35 an ounce. That is amazing. As we wrap up then, Jeff, uh, just a couple of questions. One on platinum. Some people are excited by, you know, and I don't know if it doesn't sound like you do ratios, but on the gold to platinum ratio, people are getting bullish on what's going on uh, with platinum. How are you seeing that market? Well, the gold to platinum ratio, I don't pay attention to it. I do pay attention to it. But, you know, platinum is an industrial metal. It responds to demand in the auto industry. Gold is a financial asset. It responds to investment demand. And, you know, I started at Jay Aaron and Company as an analyst in December of 1980. And the Friday before I started, the gold price had risen above the platinum price. Platinum was always at a premium to gold and it had moved to a discount. So the following Monday I started, and, you know, one of the first things that w the partner in charge of trading said, hey, normally we would now sell gold and buy platinum, assuming that the premium would restore itself. I said, no, this is December 1980. We are in what was that and the time, the deepest recession in the post-war period. The auto industry was on its back and some auto companies were pleading for government support to stay alive. And... In that environment, recession, economic chaos, high inflation, high interest rates, investors were pouring into gold. So I said, no, I think that gold stays at a premium platinum for some time. And it did until I think it was like the first quarter of 1983 before platinum had risen, by which time we were out of the recession. Oil prices had fallen sharply. Investors were less interested in gold. And the auto industry was buying more platinum group metals. So I look at the ratios and I say, well, what's it reflecting? And what you're seeing right now is a platinum market that is weakened by virtue of weaker auto demand. 
for a variety of both short-term cyclical and longer-term secular changes in the auto industry, and a gold market that's being bold higher by investors looking at the state of the world and saying, I think I should own more gold. Very interesting. And just as a final holiday question for you to surprise you with, Jeff, do you have any gold Christmas stories? Uh, anything on your radar that happened in your storied career? About Christmas? I don't think I do. You know, I'm surprised to say I, I don't necessarily think I do. Maybe there's still one to come in the future. Uh, maybe this is a tiny one that you got asked about gold Christmas stories at one point in your life. <laughs> if one ever occurs to you, do let me know and we'll bring you back okay. on. <laughs> All right, Good. thank you. Jeffrey Christian, Managing Partner at CPM Group. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner Podcast for this extended interview and have a happy holiday. You too, thanks. Thank you once again to Jeffrey Christian and CPM Group for joining us on this special holiday edition of the Northern Miner Podcast. And thank you, dear listener. I hope you have enjoyed the show today and throughout the year. We have many exciting guests coming up, including next week, we're going to talk to Mining.com Senior Editor Cecilia Jamazmi for a summary of what took place this year and the big stories that caught her eye as we look forward into 2024 and what might happen there. So a big Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to one and all. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.